Right, the scripture reading for the, for the uh, sermon this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 5. And um, I'm going to start at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, then that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse to the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we are now continuing our series through the Gospel of Matthew, and we find ourselves in the middle of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Um, two sermons ago, I, I preached um, Citizens in the Kingdom, talking about the character traits of citizens of the kingdom and the blessings associated with, with those who are citizens of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing forth. He's preaching the gospel message of the kingdom of heaven. And this is, this, this is the heart of the message that, that he, is, he is preaching about that kingdom. Last week, Pastor Steve uh, did an overview of this same passage uh, of scripture that I read here this morning, um, and talking about the, uh, the law and the fact that the Pharisees, when you think Pharisees, when you see Pharisees, in the Bible, you should think law, 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 right? And he talked about the fact that this is bad news that Jesus has for us. And this is a bad news sandwich, to be honest with you, this, this complete passage that we have. It's bookended by bad news, law, more bad news, We're going to see that this morning as we hit the high points of what Jesus has to say about the law here this morning. I have a couple introductory uh, things to to go through before I I touch on each one of these uh, passages that Jesus has for us here this morning um, about his kingdom law. First of which is the fact that Jesus, as the king of the kingdom of heaven, is declaring his law. It, in the Old Testament, it was, it was the, the king, each king was to write the law, right? We, we've heard this before, uh, taught here in this church from, from the scriptures. And, and, and this is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's come out, he's declared the blessings, as Pastor Steve pointed out last week, first, which is an opposite of, of the old, old Covenant and the Old, old Testament. He's, he's bringing the blessings first, and now he's bringing forth his kingdom law. And when Jesus gives his kingdom law, he does not come up with a new law. He takes the Mosaic law and rightly interprets it. So as we're going to see, each time Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, but I say, he's not replacing the Mosaic law. He is rightly going to give us the right interpretation of that law. One of the other things we're going to see is a common theme that Jesus weaves through here is this idea that outward and superficial appearance of compliance with the law does not constitute full obedience to the law. The Pharisees were all about 
outward appearances. In fact, when they added to the law, which they often did, they heaped all kinds of extra outward prescriptive restrictions that were a burden to the people. Things, more things to make them look better and make everybody else look worse. Right? This is what they, they specialized in this. And you can see here, and we've, we've talked about it before already, um, but you're going to see it throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is on a collision course with these guys. And he's not going to lose that collision. So Jesus is going to get to the heart of the law, and he's going to show that the heart of the law is, is, is in what goes on in the heart of, of people is every bit as important as the external nature of the law. One of the other things I'd like to point out this morning, and, and you know, came from one of the you know the the reading from uh, Psalm this morning, um, the law you know it's bad news in the Old Testament is is a ministry of bad news. The Old Covenant is um, in in the sense that of of the law and the demands of the law. Right, we've we've talked about this. It's a it's a ministry of death. In fact, um, the the writer of Hebrews calls it, um, but. The law is good, though, right? The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. And there's a distinction that I'd like to make as well is the fact that there's the moral law. You're thinking like Ten Commandments, right? And then there's the ceremonial law. And Pastor Steve made a a statement last week about it being bad news, right? Um, And... You know, subsequent conversations during the week with various people, um, there was the, the, this idea, though, what, what, you know, the, the Israelites, what they've seen all of the law as bad news. Well, the ceremonial law pointed to something, that God was going to make a way for reconciliation or a way for men to be right with God. And we're, gonna, we're, you know, we're, we're not going to go into that in great depth here this morning, but I, w- I want to uh, you know, make that distinction. We're going to focus sort of more on the moral law here this morning and what its function is. But that ceremonial law, which Jesus ultimately fulfills as the perfect sacrifice, is, is there for us. And all those types and shadows of that law point to him. So... We'll just get right into it here this morning. The first law that Jesus properly interprets is the sixth commandment. When he says that you heard of it of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But Jesus takes it further, and he goes to the heart of the law and what goes on in the heart. And he says, if you are angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. And it's interesting, whenever, if you've ever done any kind of evangelism or you've ever seen evangelism done in this way where people are confronted with, uh, with the gospel message and the requirements of the law, people will, will declare their, their goodness. And what's the first thing that they say? I've never murdered anybody. What's Jesus say? Really? <laughs> right? That's what he says. See, and, and I can't help but to think about Cain and Abel here. 
right? He's talking about your brother, right? And if you have anger against your brother, you, you, you're committing murder in your heart. And, and you see the, the root of that, right? What, what caused Cain to kill Abel? Jealous anger and hatred for his brother, right? That was the heart of it. And he carried out an action after that. But the root was there. And lots of people are prevented from killing people only because of fear of punishment, right? Or cowardice or any other number of reasons, right? It's not because they're good that they don't kill other people necessarily. There are other forces and factors in place that, that prevent them from doing that. So, so we, get, we get to the, the fact that the, the, the root of murder is hatred, jeal- uh, anger and jealous hatred. Um, and and why, why, is it, why is it wrong? So just on the, on the front face of it, why, why is it wrong to murder? You know, what, what, what's so great about human life that it's valuable in the first place? Human life is valuable because we are image bearers of God, right? That's the argument. And one of the things that I I failed to mention at the beginning, that one of the other themes that we're going to see that runs through here, and we'll pick it up here because I'm going to pick it up on this uh, this first law that Jesus gives us, is that the law of God reflects the character of God, right? The, the, the King, Je- King Jesus, the lawgiver for his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, that law reflects his character. And we see that here also because there are numerous passages in the Bible in the Old Testament and elsewhere where what is said about God, God is slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Exodus 30, uh, 34, 6, Numbers 14, 18, various Psalms over and over again. Almost that exact phrase is used over and over again to describe God. Right? So we can see where his law and his kingdom law reflect his very character. Moving on to the next law that Jesus gives, and that is the seventh commandment, the command that you shall not commit adultery. Now, I'm going to say this, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, uh, Lord willing, from this pulpit, but according to God's word, the only God-honoring expression of human sexuality is within heterosexual monogamous covenantal marriage period end of story if we're to take this book at all seriously we have to say that right now that being said jesus again has more in mind than outward expression right the root of adultery you see is lust and Jesus points this out and tells us that to look at a woman with lustful intent is to commit adultery with her in your heart so 
What's the second thing that people, that whenever confronted with whether or not they're a good person or they deserve to go to heaven, what's the second thing that they say in, in declaring their goodness? I've never cheated on my wife. And to which Jesus again says, really? <laughs> and we can see this here. So, um, adulterer at heart is what we see in place here for, for all who would lust after, after somebody else um, who is not their husband or their wife. Now, Jesus calls for drastic action here, does he not? Um, he says to tear your eye out or cut your hand off if it causes you to sin. Now, I don't think he literally means for us to do that. But what he is saying, I think, is that drastic action is necessary. And the Bible elsewhere calls us to, to, to also take dra- drastic action. And in fact, uh, in the epistles, we're commanded to flee sexual immorality, right? This idea that we're supposed to, to, to flee. So I, I have to ask the question here this morning. What drastic actions have you taken? I know you've even gouged your eye out. I know you haven't chopped your hand off. But, but what, what, have you, what are you doing to avoid this sin in a depraved culture in which we find ourselves? What hedges of protection have you put up? What things have you jettisoned from your life to avoid this kind of sin? I'm sorry to say too often, I think many Christians leave that door open to the flesh and say, I can watch this program or I can be involved in in this thing or that thing that they know is not right. That's the drastic action I think Jesus is calling us to, is to, to cut those things out of our lives, to flee this, this uh, sexual sin that so permeates our culture. The next law that Jesus deals with is that of divorce, and it's related. It's related here to, to the one that, we've just, that he's just talked about. And he, he says... He says this, I'll I'll just read it, Um, starting in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The verses that Jesus is alluding to here come from Deuteronomy, and these verses contrary to what was going on at the time, are, do not give approval for divorce. But it did recognize that it took place. And it was a concession given to sinful man. And we'll see that later on in Matthew, as Jesus addresses this issue more directly later. I can't help but to mention that there was a big thing that happened in this country, in the United States in 1969 in California. Does anybody know what that is in relation to this? No-fault divorce, that's right, was introduced in the U.S. in California in 1969. Interesting timing, right? 
And as a result of that, there has been an explosion of the number of divorces in this country. It's interesting to note that that same thing was going on in Jesus' time. Similar thing, let's say. Men were sending wives away and giving them certificates of divorce for all kinds of reasons. And there were even disagreements between the various rabbis and teachers of the law at that time on what a proper grounds of divorce would be. The liberal rabbis was anything, and of course the more conservative rabbis, it was more related to to sexual immorality, as Jesus uh, talked about. And you know, you can go you can go look at the the verses in Deuteronomy if you'd like to to see that, um, and uh, you know, as to what the real context of of this this uh, uh, this command or this law is relative to divorce that Jesus is bringing forth. But, but the main point is this: Jesus makes it clear that God hates divorce. Why? Why does God hate divorce? Because it goes against the character of God. God is faithful. Right? He is faithful. He calls us to be faithful in covenantal marriage. It's a picture of something. It's a picture of the marriage of Jesus and his bride, the church. And it is precious to him. That is why this is important. There's all kinds of other reasons, but that is the root reason as to why God hates divorce. The next law is that of relative to taking oaths. I've talked about this, I think, before in, in a weekly one another here. And um, Jesus talks about this idea of, of making vows and faring, swearing falsely. Um, and it's kind of interesting that there were actually debates amongst the teachers of the law of Jesus' time on whether a vow was binding, depending on what it was sworn by and how it was done. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of funny, right? I mean, you know, people would make a promise or a vow and then they would try to get out of it later saying, well, you know, I, I didn't really, I swore by, you know, that, but, it, you know, it's not really that important. It's not really binding, right? And Jesus, he gets to the point here. He just talked, eventually what we get to is the, the principle that's, that, that's, uh, that's at the heart of this, this law that he's giving here, that he's expounding on, is that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. Why? Because we should be honest, right? We need to be honest. And why do we need to be honest? Because, again, it's consistent with God's character. God is not deceitful, but trustworthy and faithful, as we, as we said on the previous uh, law that was talked about here. And we know that we can trust God's word because he is trustworthy and faithful. So our yes should be yes and our no should be no. And it's interesting to me whenever you look at the public figures in our, our, our culture, um, you, and, and politicians of various stripes, right? And they'll go on TV and, or on, the, on the, you know, in, news, in print or wherever, and they'll say all kinds of crazy things. And then they get under oath, and it's very different. 
They say very different things whenever they're actually under oath. And, and, and maybe not, you know, for fear of punish, punishment, really. Uh, but the reality is, is, is that, uh, uh, you know, even, even under oath, uh, more and more we see, we see dishonesty. And, you know, we see this also in our, in our culture and in our, even in our language when we say things like, uh, let me be honest with you, right? We've, we've, I've said that before, right? I'm going to be honest with you. When somebody says that to me, I always say to myself, self, is this person normally not honest with me? <laughs> what, where's the need to say this, right? So you can see where Jesus is getting at, right? We, should, we need to be honest and we need to be truthful. And our yes should be yes and our no should be no. We should not try to manipulate others with this kind of language. That's what Jesus is saying. Next, we get into this law of retaliation in verse 38. Lex talionis, right? Law of retaliation. Um, Jesus says this. He says, an eye for, You heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on one cheek, on your right cheek, turn to him the other cheek, right? Turn the other cheek. Everybody knows this one, right? Everybody, I think even our culture in the unchurched and people who don't know anything about the Bible know, know about this, right? Um, well, this, this law of, of retaliation goes back a long way. Um, and it's at least in three different places in the Old Testament, in, in Exodus, Leviticus, and De- Deuteronomy. Um, and it was not a prescription to retaliate against others whenever you are injured. It established a limit to recover the recovery of damages done it was, wasn't a prescription, a prescription for you to, 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 and it certainly wasn't um, a law of revenge, right? In fact, in Leviticus 19, 18, um, and other places in the Old Testament also, but definitely there, um, it, it forbids individuals to seek revenge or to bear grudges. And we're going we're to see, see that same verse in the next law that Jesus expounds. But Jesus, what, he, what does he do? He points to the right attitude that citizens of his kingdom should have, and that is a forgiving heart, right? One that doesn't insist always on its rights, and one that will even bear cheerfully whenever they're wronged. That is the right kingdom attitude that Jesus pulls forth in expounding upon this law. And not, I need to get back at people for what they've done to me. In verse 43, Jesus goes on to to say this. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And it's interesting, you know, it doesn't actually, this this comes from Leviticus 19, 18. It doesn't actually say to hate your enemy. But apparently people were saying that. Um, but Jesus says this. He says, I say to you, as King Jesus, as, as uh, the one ushering in the kingdom of heaven, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. It's interesting. You know, we, we started, where do we start? We started... Your righteousness needs to, to, to exceed that of the Pharisees. And now we're, be like your Father who is in heaven. 
And how, how is he? What is he like? What is God like? And Jesus uses this object lesson here. He says, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He shows kindness and mercy and love towards everyone, even his enemies. And I have to think that this teaching that Jesus had had to really go against the grain of human nature. And in, in, in fact, for the, the first century Jews um, who were under Roman Gentile rule at the time, they were looking for a Messiah that would come and liberate them from the rule that they, that, that they had to figure that he was going to come and that there was going to be war. He was going to make war against Rome. And this king, this great expectation that this is the Messiah, the chosen one of God that was going to come and rescue them, is saying, love your enemies. And, but we, as we've discussed a number of times already in the book of Matthew, the kingdom that Jesus was establishing was not a worldly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. And the currency of that, that kingdom that he's establishing is love. Love not only for neighbor, but also for enemies. You see, God is love. God is a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And what Jesus is saying is is that his children, God's children, citizens of this kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, should be like him. If you are a Christian, what were you before you were saved? You were a rebellious hater of God. You were his enemy, and yet he, by his spirit, chose to regenerate you, remove your heart of stone, and he saved you. You know, I love this, the songs that we sing here and, and the, 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 the lyrics of, of those old hymns and some of the more contemporary songs. And I, I, I can't help but to think of, of the song that we often sing, and it's Jesus, thank you. You, you know what I'm thinking about? Do you know the lyric that I'm thinking of? It says, once your enemy, now seated at your table. What a beautiful picture. So if you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you recognize that your enemy today could be your brother tomorrow because God continues to do this redemptive work. One only need to look at the life of Saul of Tarsus to see a biblical example of this principle play out right before our eyes. It's a glorious thing. So now, Jesus has worked us through a number of laws in our text today, and we've come now to the other end of the bad news sandwich that I talked about at the beginning, right? And it's this statement that Jesus makes in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We saw this transition 
where Jesus goes from talking about the righteousness of the Pharisees and you, you need to ex- exceed that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So the question then is, how much more? How, how much more do I need to exceed their righteousness? And we come to the other end and Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So the standard is perfection. Perfect keeping of the law and not just outward letter of the law, but keeping the root and intent of the law in our hearts and in our minds. Who among us measures up to this standard? No one. The sermon title this morning, uh, if you saw it, is, uh, comes from a head coach of a certain football team. And it's a phrase that he often uses. It's the standard is the standard, right? And, and he would say this, as any starting players would would get injured and someone else would have to step in. And this team, this football team, which will go nameless, had a very high standard of expectation and achievement. Operative word, had. The expectation is that the substitute players would live up to that standard, Right? That's the expectation. The standard's the standard. doesn't matter how important that player was that got hurt. person coming in is going to live up to the standard. And I have to say this this morning, and, and don't laugh at me too much, but I have a measurably better chance of filling in on the offensive line of that football team than living up to the standard that Jesus lays down here. All 198, 99 pounds and five foot six of me has a better chance of playing left tackle for that football team and professional football than living up to that to the standard that Jesus lays down here. Jesus absolutely closes the door on anyone's attempt to be justified by the law before God closes the door. It's slammed shut. So what now? Can anyone enter the kingdom of heaven? No one's perfect. What about the king? You know, saying something like this, that you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, is ridiculous. Unless the person saying it was in fact perfect. Jesus was and is just that. How do we know? Well, I mean, people, I mean, people have made movies. Last Temptation of Christ, many years ago, terrible movie, right? We're in all kind of question about, you know, the, the, you know, did Jesus live a perfect life? People preach ridiculous sermons saying things like, when Jesus was disciplined as a child, right? Ridiculous, you know? Jesus was never disciplined as a child because Jesus never committed a sin. How do we know? 
How, how can I say that with such certainty here this morning? The resurrection. The resurrection is so very important. Okay? Jesus came, lived a perfect life as a man under God's standard, under the moral law, died as the unblemished lamb, and that sacrifice, remember this, the, the sacrificial system we referred to earlier, that Jesus fulfills, we know that that sacrifice was absolutely acceptable to God. How do we know? Because of the absolute historic fact that Jesus rose again on the third day. We know Jesus perfectly kept the law, right? So how do we enter the kingdom of heaven? How, how can you, how can anybody enter the kingdom of heaven? By putting your faith in the one who perfectly kept that law, Jesus. Justification before God is by faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross in behalf of sinners like you and like me. So what about the law then? Do we just jettison the law because we cannot be justified by it? No, we do not. There's threefold purpose of the law and use of the law that's biblical. I'm going to talk about one of them here as I close here this morning. And that is this. The law is a mirror by which sinners are pointed to their greatest need. What is their greatest need? Righteousness. They don't have it. They can't produce it themselves. Romans 3.20 says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, I have to ask the question, if you're a Christian, if you're in ministry, is your evangelism devoid of any mention of God's law? People need to be pointed to the fact that they are rebels against God and his holy law before they can see their need for a savior. Also, the mirror is also useful for Christians in this sense. We, we do know that there is a work of sanctification, a work that's done by God's Holy Spirit that indwells each and every Christian. And the standard's still the standard. The mirror is still the, the mirror in that, in that regard. And I have to think about heaven as well, right? Do you think that there will be murderers? Do, do you think there'll be hate? Do you think there'll be lust? Do, do you think there'll be lies? Do you think there'll be sin of any kind in heaven? No, there will not. In fact, we know that heaven is heaven, not because it's some you know, great place you know, where you know, everything is perfect and all that sort of a thing and there's no God. Heaven is heaven because God is there. God's dwelling will be amongst men. And you know, going back to our Old Testament study, right? What is the book of Leviticus about? Wednesday nighters. How a holy 
That's right. Amen. Amen. <laughs> that is absolutely right. And, and, there was, and all that ceremonial law that I talked about earlier comes into play there, right? And, that's, that's, you know, and that was what was put in place so that God could dwell with, with, with the nation of Israel. Well, this is a beautiful thing. We're, we're going to be changed. Right, right now, we're, 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 we're sinners, right? We're still, if, you're, if you're a Christian, you still have the flesh. We still war against the flesh, right? And God's doing this work of sanctification, should be doing, if you're a Christian, you should be confronted by your sin on a regular basis, by the Spirit of God, your conscience working together in your life, and you're getting more and more like Jesus. So in the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be no sin. Go read Revelation 21. It says there's not going to be any of these kinds of people. But all of the people that are mentioned were those things at one time, right? Something happened. They were changed. And the standard was the standard, right? So there should be this work of sanctification happening. And we know at the, at the very end of our lives, right, when Jesus returns or, or we die and then are resurrected later, we're going to be giving perfect bodies that can dwell with God, right? No sin and all the bad things that go along with it. And he promises you that he's going to do this work in your life. And, and, and I, I want, want a while back... A number of years ago, there was a, a preacher that I was listening to, and, and he made a statement that just struck me. Um, and he was quoting from Ezekiel thirty six twenty five, um, a promise uh, that God is going to sanctify his uh, his his church. And this is, this is the quote: He promises you, believer, that he is going to work in your life and cleanse you from all your filthiness. And from all your idols. And let's stop here because I know what you are thinking. Yep. When I step over into glory, it's all going to get done. All that work's going to get done. And then he said this. If it's not getting done here, it won't get done there. Because you're not going there. It's a hard word. It's a hard word. Every believer's life should be marked with this process of sanctification, whereby we are over and over confronted with our sin by God's law. And God does, we repent of that sin and we turn away from that sin towards God. And God is changing us more and more into the image of his son. And if that's not happening in your life, you may need to examine yourself to see if you do indeed have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the great King and that you are, in fact, a citizen of His kingdom. Let's pray.